Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Software Crafts Podcast. I'm João, your host, and today with me I have Ben. Ben is an indie consultant who teaches worldly mapping and other ways to do stuff on purpose. Creator of the Learning Worldly Map, check out learningworldlymap.com website. He's also a blogger, podcaster, trainer, and public speaker. Hi Ben, and welcome to the show. Hi João, thank you for having me. Really appreciate uh, you inviting me on the show, and I'm excited to talk about um, wonderful things about software crafts. Cool. Thanks for your time. So we're going to go as usual. So we're going to start with the heuristic, and the heuristic today is prefer rich modes of communication. What is your opinion about that? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear that heuristic is, can we qualify some of the terms? Um, like, what what is richness? And I'm kind of curious for Sir Joao if you could actually talk to me a little bit about what you think of when you hear richness. And I think that will help me reflect back a little bit of what I think about with richness of communication. Yeah, for sure. So um, in, this, uh, in this case and the description of the, the heuristics, it's about the, 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 the environment and the job where the, the communication is in, right? So we can have rich communication or less rich. And with software, we were used to synchronous communication as a rich mode, right? And um, a synchronous communication was the, the distant cousin that we never saw. So the, the, the idea about the rich and qualifying rich, it's about these intense or very immersive types of communication that we can have. And of course, context is king. So in this case, rich means that these immersive types of communication. Does it make All sense? Right. Yes. Excellent. Like I hear, I hear words like intense and immersive and contextual, um, and that that makes a lot of sense because presumably, when you're communicating with others, you're trying to convey something or even shape something together uh, to create some common ground between between the two of you. Um, or if you're in a group trying to create common ground together and in a lot of ways, like shallow, uh, less rich kind of modes of communication prevent certain kinds of, uh, depths of richness in terms of common ground. So yeah, interesting. So always prefer richness when it comes to communication. That makes a lot of sense. And for someone like myself, I, I do a lot of work with mental models and oftentimes uh, drawing things. So trying to visualize what we understand about the context. And I think richness has both to do with what goes said and what goes unsaid. Like in, in a certain way, if I can convey something to you without having to speak, um, like stories are a great example of this, right? I can, I can tell you story and you can fill in the context behind the scenes as I tell that story. Um, you can uh, also kind of identify the, the standard sort of story structures. Like, you know, uh, remember this, um, this video of Kurt Vonnegut talking about the different kinds of uh, narrative arcs that uh, you might see in different kinds of stories, but a lot of them are identifiable up front. And so you just have to finish, like fill out just a couple of those context points and the, the user, the person hearing the story can fill in the rest in a lot of ways. So in, you know, richness could be what goes 
unsaid, what isn't explicit, what's tacit, what's um, kind of behind what we actually say when we communicate. But, you know, I'd say richness ought to enable a lot of different nexts. So if I talk to you in a rich way, then I think there should be a lot of different places for that, that conversation to go. Um, whereas, say, a more shallow or, or less rich uh, kind of conversation point, I, I expect would have fewer places to go. And so maybe there's, a, there's an aspect of not necessarily knowing where it's going to go, but having a lot of options. And uh, I think things can flow through those options in that way. Does that make sense? Yes, indeed, makes lots of sense. I'm taking lots of notes, so uh, this will be fun. So uh, you talk about stories, uh, and when we think about stories, we think about written stuff, right? Uh, although this conversation can be a story, but because it's synchronous, it's easier to go. Do you yeah. think that in the last seven months due to the pandemic, we are relearning how to tell stories in a different format to enable them to be rich? So there's an interesting thing to point out there, which is how people have like commun been communicating, um, maybe pre-COVID and and mid-COVID, because uh, I live in the states and it doesn't seem like uh, that will be letting up anytime soon. Um, so thinking about how this plays out, how have people's communications pattern communication patterns changed? And I think you could see. A lot of, um, especially in the workplace, a lot of in-person communication suddenly going remote, uh, which which means a lot of different implications for both planned and unplanned communication. Um, actually, one of probably the the aspects of communication that has diminished the most is unplanned communication. Um, so wandering into each other in the hallway, catching up over a cup of coffee while waiting for you know something to. Uh, get cooked in the microwave or something like that. The, all those kind of accidental um, sort of spontaneous opportunities for communication have disappeared in a large part because, I mean, there's no real reason for them to occur uh, when everyone's working remote. Um, and, you know, it's, it's for, from the standpoint of telling stories, when do we tell stories? And I think they can, you know, we can tell stories for fun or we can tell stories um, as a way to convey, you know, what, what's happened to us in a, in a short amount of time. Um, and the storytelling opportunities have changed as well. So, I mean, imagine telling us like being used to telling stories in person and then having to sort of convey the same kind of energy and uh, kind of audience capture over zoom. It's a lot harder. Um, I've done a lot of workshop facilitation over Zoom through the pandemic, and it is so hard to create that same dynamic of capturing people's attention and, and keeping them engaged and interested. Um, and I think probably one of the biggest coping mechanisms we have is just trying to recreate some of those uh, things that we still have, like eye contact and... Um, sort of uh, facial features moving, you know, or my eyebrows go out uh, up at a certain point, or, you know, maybe, maybe I get closer to the camera or farther away from the camera. Like these kinds of things can still come be carried through. Um, 
even if they're less, slightly less effective, but by paying more attention to them instead of just assuming that they'll happen automatically and naturally, we can uh, regain a little bit of that control. So I guess for storytelling, it's what stories um, also are being told. Like there were, there were different kinds of stories told pre-COVID than there are being told now. Um, you, the way that you can know that this is the case is that you can, you can imagine what it's like to ask someone how they're doing now. Like it's a question that either people really, really hate um, or they're uncomfortable with, or they, they get out of it by just doing a very kind of simplistic, I'm fine, let's move on, which was to some extent was the case prior to, to COVID. But um, especially now, I think um, you have folks who are leaning into those kinds of questions and, and being very open and personal about what's going on in their, in their lives. And so that kind of story starts to, their story starts to be told in, in that way. And perhaps in a more personal way than you would otherwise expect under normal circumstances. Um, but for other people, they're just not telling the stories at all because it's painful um, or stressful. So yeah, th- there's a lot of um, things we could poke at there, I think, around storytelling. Yeah, definitely it is. And thanks, uh, thanks for sharing. I also, well, share the, 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 the same feeling regarding the workshops. It's way harder. Even I had um, situations where people don't turn on the camera, which it's even harder. It's the person there or not. You can see in a room if people are disconnected. Yeah, yeah and, and to that point, like it's, it's really hard because to ask someone to turn on their camera it may seem reasonable on its face, but a lot of times people are dealing with uh, work situations where their, their home office isn't you know, finely crafted and tuned and they don't have all the, the sort of luxuries of, you know, um, for example, not having to do childcare in the middle of a workshop, right? They might have a kid on their lap and they don't want to um, necessarily have all that exposed on a camera. So in, in a way it's like, not only do people not necessarily engage in these ways, but we as facilitators almost have to accommodate that as an expectation, even if we can try to set as like, certain kinds of expectations up front where like, Hey, it'll be really helpful if we can have this almost normal interaction, face-to-face pseudo kind of interaction. Um, we can, we can try to set those expectations, but also we kind of have to accept people's realities. So yeah, it's a really tough kind of thing to navigate as we, as we deal with this mid COVID, uh, sort of scenario. Indeed. But, um, that is also the thing, right? So, um, um, I'm I'm a fan of till organizations, right? Bringing your wholeness to the to workplace, and this is what we get now. The the mask falls off, right? You have kids, you might have a partner, you have pets, and we are at home, so it's it's normal. And what I see here is um, organizations and we, for instance, as facilitators, we are accepting this, and also it's being accelerated. You bring Ben, you have a cat partner, maybe kids, and, and this is normal. In another day, I was discussing with someone an uh, opportunity for an assignment, and my daughter just joined. Well, it's normal <laughs> nowadays. Um, but this is very interesting because this also alters the fabric of how we have the, the relationships as humans, and perhaps the, the perception what the rich mode is. Right Before was the, the coffee corner conversation, today, well, the guys at Basecamp had their, those guidelines about synchronous versus synchronous communication and what an idea is. Um, and I see now also more people 
going there, having more refined and rich ideas in an asynchronous fashion. So the written story. Do you have the same experience? So, so run that by me again. So, refined written experiences as a as a synchronous thing or an asynchronous thing? And as a, a synchronous thing, even if we use, I'm I'm noticing a pattern. Even if people use tools like Slack or Teams that are asynchronous tools that pre-COVID we use in a synchronous fashion, people are refining the ideas, not just dropping a word or a line. They are taking time to write and think what they mm. are writing uh, because today they cannot drop a line and pop up in next desk. You cannot do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's hard to say because, you know, in, in large part, my experiences are limited to what I see happening at my clients um, and in my own work, which as a, as an indie kind of consultant, like I just kind of do my own thing, which means in a lot of ways I set expectations that work for me. And I, I really don't know how other people are, are navigating those kinds of situations. I, I think in a large part, the corporate sort of sides of, of the world are, are very, so the enterprise world is, is very much focused on trying to restore as much as they can to quote unquote normal. Um, so instead of uh, sort of embracing some of these, um, what they would call like digital kind of transitions, um, they're trying to recreate physical experiences in the digital space, which for better or for worse leads you to like weird kind of experiences where you have like conferences that have like, like a physical sort of recreation of the physical space in an online space. And it's very strange and it it doesn't quite fit. Um, But yeah, I mean that wanting what used to be is, is a common kind of pattern Um, for myself. I, I've always been very resistant to synchronous communication. Um, and I've had the, I've had the, I guess, benefit of mostly going, going solo on projects. And so kind of having um, limited synchronous experiences when I work on teams and I try to contain those in a way that's, that's um, not running into the problem of basically um, having my attention always one notification away from being pulled into work. Um, so I, I tend to turn off all notifications when I can. I tend to avoid um, all opportunities for kind of synchronous experiences unless it's it's intentional and planned. Um, and doesn't always work that way. But um, I will say what that causes you to do is it causes you to try to, uh, I think, compensate by investing more in in quality of writing, even if it's just offering thoughts on some, you know, idea or other, you know, a well-composed email never goes astray. Um, especially one that's, that's thoughtfully done. And I think thinking more and communicating less can be, um, a condition for richness. Um, it's just a matter of like, can people consume the volume? So yeah, there's probably a lot there too around, um, you know, what's the phrase you, I, I would have written a shorter letter if I'd had more time, something like that. Um, you, you can make, uh, ri- written words rich without having a lot of them. And so I think there's maybe an art to that where 
what you're what you're active, actively doing is creating conditions for the certain like certain kinds of conversations that you want more of or less of. And um, the way you write and the way that you communicate right now is in a lot of ways dictating those conditions. So um, as an exercise for the listener, like you could think about the next email you write, you know, when someone asks you a question, what kind of conversations do you want to have after you respond? And maybe that will change what you write in response to the initial question. So think about those conditions. Thanks for this challenge to the audience. It's it's just perfect because I was uh, noting down that now all of us, we can create conditions. Because one thing that you triggered me also when I I, I experienced that uh, during the initial times, everyone tried to uh, mimic the same experience as we have live uh, or pre-COVID. And I helped a customer that I'm finalizing now to to understand that communication patterns change. So I'm very on top of the, the team topologies, team API that Matthew and Manuel did. Mm. How to, to, to be very explicit into conditions. What can you expect from me in terms of these notifications? The team can say, we don't answer, you know, expectedly time of one hour because from this time block, we are coding and we want to be focused, which is a very, very interesting. And I think that goes with conditions that you are talking about. Today, we need to think more about this environment. And it's an awesome challenge. <laughs> Thanks to, for helping out. Um, and talking about conditions and also your previous works, uh, and, uh, well, I already follow you, but uh, last week uh, we had some workshops about worldling mapping. Do you see that the, this as a tool to convey ideas and as a rich mode of communication? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it, it ties well into what we were just talking about, where in a lot of ways th there's... It's hard to say this the right way. Like I think in a lot of cases we can we can say that the design thinking, so not design thinking, but the thinking about the design of the system that that happens is often inadequate. And um, the result of inadequate design is uh, the absence of purposeful systems. So systems that um, kind of just behave the way that they behave, and we're not necessarily modulating those intentionally. And I think the way that we communicate is very much in, in a transition mode like this. We're doing the sort of the first order response where something hurts and then we do something different in order to correct um, whatever's going wrong. And we don't take the moment that we need to, need to take after that to go, okay, now that we're out of the mess and we've kind of gotten ourselves past this initial transition point, how ought the system work? And I think managing synchronous versus asynchronous times is like very important, um, but like it ought to be designed instead of something that just happens naturally, if that makes sense. Um, because we've lost the physical medium where we had natural modes of, of kind of doing this stuff. So can you explicitly design, for example, synchronous uh, serendipity? Like, hey, I will, I will hold these office hours every week between this hour and this hour. Anyone can come, we can hang out, we can talk about stuff and move on, right? And, and, that, and you know, people know that you set those expectations that they can show up and then have a less formal time where they can ask you just about anything that's been on their mind. So as, like a, as an example of a designed thing that might need to take place more often in workplaces, um, I think 
we just need to be more careful about what is happening already and then the way it ought to be happening or ought not be happening. So that leads me into Wordly Mapping, which uh, Wordly Mapping, um, I, I run the website learnwordlymapping.com. And it, Wordly Mapping, I like to say, is three basic things. It's a, a visual way to understand systems and how they're changing. It is a body of research around capitalism and kind of how supply and demand competition changes a lot of the, the capabilities and components that are around us every day um, and, and causes them to evolve. And then the third thing is basically it's a strategic thinking framework for making better decisions and basically leveraging the opportunities that surface once you get a good understanding of the context and understand how uh, capitalism is affecting it. So when it comes to communications, um, there are a lot of basics that get missed, I think, in most like average meeting conversations about what it is that we're trying to do here. So as an example, we get together for uh, like a planning meeting, and I guarantee you that in most organizations, the folks who are sitting around the table about to have the conversation or the virtual table if you're on Zoom, more likely, um, you probably are not all thinking about the same people uh, who the organization should be serving. And so you're coming in already misaligned about what we're trying to accomplish here. And um, a way like a positive mode of that kind of behavior would be, Hey, let's real quick get synchronized on who we're serving by having this meeting, by talking about what we'll talk about, who will we serve and what needs are we trying to meet? And if you make a big list and there are like 30 different users, and then you choose one of them, that, that moment where you choose one, is the moment the whole conversation turns uh, intentional rather than unintentional. Everyone aligns on, hey, yes, we all had different perspectives, but let's focus on this one user and this set of needs for today's meeting. And so you, you've created a, a point of coherence there where people are um, on the same page in a way. Now, yeah, again, you'll have different perspectives about that same page, but that's fine. But even, even basic things like that, um, are often missing. And so Wardley Mapping says, hey, that's like table stakes. You need to have an understanding of who you're serving. And then once you have that kind of basic stuff down, you should probably know what the parts of the system are. And that might be, you know, technologies, it might be practices, it might be uh, the knowledge that you have in the organization. And then what, what it says next is, we should probably know how these parts are interrelated. So what depends on what else? And if you sort of des describe the system in terms of something that is fulfilling those user needs, you can create something called a value chain. And a value chain is just those dependencies fulfilling user needs. So this user needs a good experience with our product. And in order to have a good experience with our product, they need to have a smooth purchasing experience, for example. And in order to have a smooth purchasing experience, they need uh, a good user interface, they need a shopping cart, et cetera. So you can, you can go down and just sort of describe this dependency chain of a system. And if we can all agree on that system, then we're going to have more clear-cut, refined you know, discussions about what it is to do with respect, to, what it is that we want to do with respect to the system, what changes we want to make, where we think the problems are. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like uh, going to the doctor and saying, hey, my arm hurts. And the doctor says, well, is it your elbow or your wrist? Oh, elbow, wrist. Okay, we're localizing 
the problem space. Oh, it's my elbow, that thing. Yeah. So it's that kind of dynamic. Um, and of course there's probably like 10 more things we could describe with worthy mapping. That's just the start, but enabling rich modes of communication has a lot to do with being careful about which kinds of common ground we create by uh, literally just making lists of things and sharing them together and discussing them. Thanks. Uh, and I think that is a good learning uh, and pun uh, for the description of the, the episode today, um, which, well, I'm biased, but I share with you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> now perhaps I'm going to ask something else, but perhaps you are biased. Do you see more companies adopting uh, Worldly Map as a practice to navigate complexity? Well, I mean, my job, if you could call it that, is to help people enter the space. So while I can say that I think there's certainly more interest now than there was six months or a year ago, um, I've been doing this for about two years and eight months or so, just full-time focused on helping people get into worthy mapping. And it's it's reassuring to see more organizations trying to pick this up. Um, I, I still think it's a, it's a practice that is not often uh, known about. So I, I think um, you, you probably have two main categories, people who, who don't, haven't heard of it at all um, and people who have kind of heard of it, but have heuristically dismissed it because it just looks like a complicated set of uh, methodologies. Like another, like probably the, the, a fair criticism is that um, it, it is rather difficult to pick up from zero. Um, and so we're trying to work on that. And so um, I imagine many people are looking at it going, wow, that's complicated probably uh, something for later and then they're moving on with their lives. So I'm trying to help folks work through that moment in particular, but yeah, I, I, more people are definitely picking it up. Um, although I think it's still a, an oft underlooked practice. Cool. Cool. I can, I definitely can, can see the, the, the same on this side of the, the Atlantic ocean. So um, Europe is in the same as us. And now I have a challenging uh, question looking to the future. Uh, and this will come with uh, uh, organizations and society, so please bear with me. So now we are seeing U.S. government and uh, Euro European Union governments tackling the, the big tech giants. So sooner or later they will cut the monopolies or the, the intention. Um, so they are cutting and today in the news in Europe that pops up they are cutting with the uh, Reagan administration practices to allow big monopolies and we are seeing the same stuff in US will worldly mapping that is a tool that looks to capitalism and how you manage that and can have different tactics to approach the market be cornerstone to navigate these next 10 years where the, the power will change assuming that all this legislation will pass in. Hmm. It's, a, it's a tough question because will it be the cornerstone? Probably not. Because if I, if I look at how the U.S. government adopts practices with maybe the exception of some of uh, sort of the digital sides of things where, you know, in the U.S. we had 18F um, and 18F was doing some really fabulous stuff, I think, The, the team that did healthcare.gov was, um, you know, surprisingly, you know, rapid um, in terms of its adoption of new technologies and 
uh, th- there's a lot of like encouraging stuff like that happening, but um, I would say more likely is you'll have organizations just doing things the way that they've always done them. Um, so if I were to predict the future and, and look into my crystal ball, I think that's the more likely scenario. Um, I, you know, would it, would it be better if they used worldly maps? Probably. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, plenty of examples, frankly, from everything from HS2 uh, I believe there was like a lifeboat rescue scenario where um, in the UK uh, they had a, a project to integrate um, 999 dispatch with uh, their lifeboat rescue for the river Thames. And um, roughly uh, I think the way that that ended up playing out is because they were so easily able to identify all the components that needed to be integrated they were able to rapidly improve the integration of these two systems and reduce the dispatch time of these lifeboats from a matter of like tens of minutes or maybe even an hour down to um, within a couple seconds in some cases. So like I'm probably um, like missing a whole lot of other examples that are out there. If you just Google for them, um, like the United Nations has done this kind of work and, and really anything that involves a lot of different points of contact on a lot of different moving parts basically means you can't pretend that the complexity isn't there. You can't pretend that all of those parts are not there. You have to acknowledge them and then you have to have an intention for each of them. And um, I think it's very difficult to do that um, with the, the current methods that folks use. Uh, so I, I highly recommend worthy mapping for large-scale you know, migrations or integrations or mergers and acquisitions, that kind of things. And for breaking apart monopolies, I feel like that would be almost like critical because if you can't see how the large system breaks down into smaller systems, then you won't be able to identify the holes. And so you're, you're, the way that you cut through the organization will be arbitrary. Um, and that's, that's going to be destructive as opposed to um, solving the original problem. Yep. Yeah, thanks for um, for your thoughts, and also it's good to see the, the the examples that that you bring to the table, virtual table, and um, the audience can can also search for that. We are gonna try to put some resources on the description. So this is this is very very interesting. And now uh, we are going towards the end, um, but I have the the you touch on complexity, so perhaps we need another half an hour, or another set of episodes. <laughs> What are the tips for these folks that try to simplify the complex problems that we have? Simple stuff before going to these worldly mapping things. What are other things that we can embrace complexity? Are you thinking tools and methods or? Yes, around that, or just to avoid the, the, the pitfall that we try to simplify problems that shouldn't be simplified. Complexity is around us and, uh, try to, to simplify them, some heuristics or some yeah. takeaways? That's, that's a really good and interesting question. I think, like, I, I will never underestimate a good list. <laughs> um, I, I think of making lists as a, as a way to make inventory of, of kind of what we ought to be thinking about at any point in time. Uh, and, and I think communication is an interesting place to make lists at. Um, and so if you like meetings are honestly, if you are having a meeting today and you don't already know 
what the intention for that meeting is, then maybe uh, it would help a lot to make a list of that intention. Um, what, what, do, what do all the different players want from this meeting? And from there, having a place to center the conversation on, like, what do you want from this? Are you here to be told yes? Are you here to get validation? Are you here to be told that you're wrong? Are you here for challenge? I think, I think just making lists of, of intentions is a really great place to start. Um, because like, obviously a list can be very long and that's okay. And in a lot of cases you should get it out of your head and get it explicitly written down as opposed to just trying to hold everything in your head. Um, I, I think there's this, this dynamic of heuristic dismissal, which is really interesting. So like if I hear something and it's, it's too much to take on or take in all at once, uh, I might ignore it just like, I can't, I can't deal with that. And uh, the sort of opposite is true, right? Like I, if, if something is overly simplistic, then like I'm going to assume it's, it's uh, easier than it is in another way. So it's like, I, I still kind of ignore, I miss the important bits about all, all this. So there's this idea of disfluency, which is, um, to slow down the conversation enough for people to have new thoughts and not to just go on these paths of like well-worn dismissal or ignoring you know, the details of something. So um, I, I like the idea of making lists as a way to slow us down just a little bit. Like, no, really, hold on. W what do you want? Or, or a list of like who we're serving. Who are we serving here? What do they need? Um, so I, I'm a really big fan of lists in case you can't tell. Cool, cool. We see, and and thanks to bring these um, all of these tips and tricks, like slowing down conversation. It's it's really helpful. I hope that the, the audience will engage and replay on that. Um, and I will stop doing questions because we could be a few more hours on this. Uh, I need to <laughs> check your agenda to continue this conversation and record more episodes. Uh, now the the final last question. Uh, what are the resources that you recommend based on this conversation that you, we had podcasts, books, courses, YouTube mm. videos, anything? Yeah. I mean, a little bit of a selfish plug, uh, learnworthymapping.com is obviously the website for worthy mapping. Um, I would love, uh, to engage you in, in, uh, learning or at least trying it out, you know, seeing how it works for you. Um, I, I think it's a very useful method for cultivating intentionality in organizations um, the other thing I'll mention is because we were talking about stories, um, there's a really interesting um, book by Cynthia Kurtz. Um, I think uh, it, it's called uh, Working with Stories. And the, the book is a fascinating exploration of how this idea of, of this thing called participatory narrative inquiry um, can be used in organizations and in communities to basically help use stories in new ways, and I think uh, create new kinds of communication in organizations. So um, I'll make sure that we have a link to that as well. Um, it's a really fascinating exploration of stories. Cool. Thanks for 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 your um, recommendations. Uh, we'll make sure that they are on the description so that the folks can follow. Also, your Twitter handler will be there. Hopefully, people will say something. Uh, so to close, thanks. Um, it was awesome. Also, you have a radiophonic voice, so I think that you calmed down people. You remember a Portuguese radio dude uh, with a very <laughs> ocean, Pacific Ocean type of voice. So thanks I for this. that. <laughs> and thanks for your time during these uh, busy times where we are to share uh, 
these thoughts with us. Yeah, I'm so grateful for the, having the time to spend with you, Joao. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. You can follow us on Twitter at SoftwareCraftsPodcast. Visit our website, SoftwareCraftsPodcast.com or follow our page on LinkedIn. Hope to see you next week. Thank you.